0: Well, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 96, Psalm 96 this morning, which was our, our scripture reading this morning. There was a man by the name of J.B. Phillips. Uh, he's somewhat known for a new te- a translation of the New Testament that he did a number of years ago. He also wrote a very interesting book, a tiny little book, called Your God is Too Small. And uh, it's a great title for the age that we live in. Because we live in a time in which God has been made to be very minuscule. And uh, you practically need a microscope. Microscope to see the God that this age has created. And unfortunately, that has had disastrous effects for us, especially the church. And one of the things uh, that I love about the Psalms is how God-centered the Psalms are. And when you read the Psalms and you encounter the God of the Psalms, you encounter a big God. A God who is beyond compare. A God who is beyond our comprehension. And when you read about God in the Psalms, it is meant to elicit our wonder, our praise, and our worship. If you want your soul to be fed, then you need to develop an appetite for the greatness of God. And you must feed upon this vision of God as he has revealed himself in his word and in the Psalms. And you must digest this God and absorb him into every fiber of your being. This morning what I want to do as we look at, at, at Psalm 96 is to help, uh, help to give you a, a vision of the greatness of this God you might ask, well, what what is the practical outcome of this? What well, what is the application for my life? It has application for every aspect of your life. Because the way that you view God, how you think about God, is going to frame the way you think about every aspect of your life as a Christian. And so it is very important that we have an accurate view of who this God truly is. And the Psalms help us with that. And Psalm 96 in particular is an awesome psalm that paints for us a picture of God's greatness. A picture of who he is, what he has done, and what he is yet to do. So, this morning, I want you just simply to meditate on the God that we find in Psalm 96, this God of salvation and judgment. A God that we praise, that we are called to praise in this psalm with song, with proclamation. In fact, when we look at this psalm, this is a call. It's really a call to God's people to proclaim his name, to sing of his name, to praise and to bless his name. But in in reality, it is a call to the whole world to stop and to acknowledge who this God is. To realize that there is none like him. Even beyond that, it it is a call to the creation itself. To give praise to God, this wonderful God, this magnificent God. The psalm is moves in kind of three movements, and, and you'll be able to pick that up by the way that the psalmist uh, frames what he has to say about God, and and you'll see that with three um, a threefold set of commands using three words that mark each section of the Psalm. So for example, in verse one and two, you'll see sing, sing, sing commands, these three this threefold command that, that begins the section from one to six. And then starting in verse seven down to verse ten, we have another set of commands that say Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe That's the second movement. And then the third movement says, let, 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 let the heavens be glad, let the sea roar, let the field exult. And so you have these commands that help move us through uh, the movements of this passage, this psalm. And then following these commands, you'll see reasons why we are to sing, why we are to ascribe to God His glory, why we are to sing of His salvation, why we are uh, to let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. And so we'll see reasons for why we should do this. So I'm hoping this morning that as we walk through this psalm, you will have a renewed sense of the greatness of God, and that should motivate you to praise him. So let's begin. We'll look at verses 1 through 6. And uh, as I said, it begins with these three commands to sing to the Lord. And really there are six commands in these verses. In in verses 1 through 3 in particular, not only are we to sing, To the Lord, we are to bless his name. We are to proclaim his salvation. We are to tell of his glory. Verse 3, and so we have these commands. And again, this is is a command that's not just for believers, not just Christians. It's a command for all the earth. Sing to the Lord all the earth. This This is a command for believers to stop. And to think about your life. If you don't know Christ this morning, if you don't know the God of the universe, if you don't know the God that has revealed Himself in His Word, you need to stop and you need to think about who this God is. You need to embrace Him as your God, as your Lord. Notice that for believers, this is a, a, a call to proclaim Him among the nations. We cannot be silent. This God, the, the glory of this God, the glory of Christ, and the glory of God's salvation needs to be like a fire in our bones. Right? Like Jeremiah said, he says, if I, if I stop talking about this God it starts to become like a fire that that burns inside of me and I can't hold it in I have to speak forth Christian faith is not a private faith never has been and it never will be Christianity the, the truth of This God, the salvation that he brings to this world, it must be proclaimed publicly, loudly, and faithfully. Now I want you to notice some other things about these first six verses. Notice that this call to sing uh, is a call to sing a new song. Now, this doesn't mean a new song in the sense of a song that that has never been sung before, but rather it is to sing old songs as if they were new songs. In other words, it is to to take the songs of our faith like the Psalms, because they are songs. Right. And and to sing them with freshness. Right. To sing them as if they were brand new. Right? We are to sing to God, sing about God with a sense of freshness. And we need to sing as though we are singing brand new songs with the same exhilarating excitement as when we first learned about them and why do we do that? Why are we called to do that? Every Sunday morning when we gather together, even though we are singing old hymns, we are singing newer songs and we are singing these songs again and again. Every morning, every Sunday that we gather as God's people, we need to sing like we're singing these things for the first time. Why? Because as Jeremiah tells us in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, a a passage that I know you are familiar with, it says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great. Is your faithfulness? I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you amazed every day at who God is? At His loving kindnesses to you? That his compassions, they never fail. They're new every morning. For every believer, if you have trusted Christ, his compassions for you are new every single day. What should our response be to that? We should praise him like we're singing a new song every day to this amazing God. Great is your faithfulness all the time. God never fails to express his greatness every day of our lives. And this is how we should sing to him. It is how this church sings. I listen to you. I've listened to you now for several months. And I want to say one of the wonderful things about this church is that you really sing. This church really sings and it tells me that you understand this. You understand how great God's faithfulness is and we should sing about it. Next, we see the command it it uh, the second part of verse 2 after he says sing to the Lord, he says bless his name. Bless his name. What does it mean to bless God? It's kind of an interesting phrase when you think about it. When you think of the word blessing in the Bible, usually you think of God blessing us. You don't think of us blessing God. How do you bless God? Right? That that seems kind of strange when you think about it. When, When God blesses us, what God does to bless us is he takes note of our needs and then he takes care of them. He blesses us, right? That's how God blesses us. Well, how do we bless God? We bless God by taking note of His glories, of His perfections, of His greatness. And then we praise Him. The word bless here, it means to enhance the reputation of something. In the case of God, when we when we bless him, we are enhancing the reputation of his name. How much time do you spend in prayer blessing God as opposed to asking God for blessing? Now, of course, there's nothing wrong to ask God for his blessing. But you should also be spending time in prayer blessing God enhancing the reputation of his name magnifying his name and meditating on his glories meditating on his perfections this is a way that you can can experience his his loving kindnesses every day his faithfulness every day is to begin your day by blessing him by by praising Him for who He is and what He has done. And then I ask you, do you do that not only in your times of prayer, but do you do it publicly? You know, one of the greatest ways that we can encourage one another as believers is to talk to each other about the greatness of our God. Right? To tell other people, look, this is what God has been doing in my life this week, he he has done this great thing. What great thing is he doing in your life? This is how we should have conversations with one another. Wow, it'll do wonder wonders for our souls to bless God both privately and publicly. Now, I want you to look at the end of verse two, where we see another command proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. This is really the heart of the praise that this psalm is calling us to, is to proclaim the good tidings. This is, this is the good news, and in, in the New Testament, the good news is simply uh, the meaning of the word gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel of salvation. Every day, right from day to day, every day, we should be looking for those opportunities to proclaim the gospel. This this is a call to evangelism, right? And, and remember, evangelism is not the job of the pastor, right? Sometimes we think that is the case. No, every one of us, as believers, as believers in Christ, have a responsibility. We have a privilege of proclaiming the good tidings of salvation that our God has brought us. You what is interesting about this is that here you have this call to evangelism, but it is in the context of a psalm that is about worship. And sometimes we, we separate worship and, and evangelism and discipleship and all these different aspects of the Christian faith. But in reality, our evangelism is an act of worship. Right. When we are evangelizing, when we are proclaiming the good tidings of his salvation from day to day, we are acting in a worshipful way. Right, look at verse three, expands upon this notion. It says, Tell of his glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. His glory and His wonderful deeds are related to His salvation. Right? The wonderful deeds of His salvation. And these things speak of His glory. What is this this good tiding of salvation? Well, it is that Christ came to this earth. The Father sent him, and he took upon himself human flesh, and he entered into this world and lived a life as you and I live. He lived a life of perfection, of obedience to the Father. And and he and he lived a life of humiliation. and, And that humiliation took him to the cross. And on the cross he died. He gave his life. He paid this steep price so that you and I could be rescued from our sin. So we could be rescued from the clutches of Satan and this evil world that we live in. And He rose again from the dead so that we would have this hope of of eternal life that even though we die... We will live again, because Christ lives again. He came to reconcile us to God, which is our greatest need as human beings. And these are His wonderful deeds that He does. And, And without these deeds, God is not magnified in the way that He would be if they had not taken place. This is his glory. Did you ever think about what it is that brings God the greatest glory in this world? What is it that magnifies God's glory more than anything else? This is the murder of his own son. His own son. Subjecting himself to the injustice of evil men. Offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And it is in that act of humiliation that God and Christ himself receives his greatest glory. Is that not amazing? Would we not want to proclaim that? To the world, to the nations This is our call. Are reminded of, of one of one of my favorite verses Second Corinthians chapter eight verse nine. An amazing snapshot of this good news of the gospel. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What an amazing piece of good news. What a sacrifice Christ made. So that we, though we lived in and were consigned to poverty forever, might live a life of richness, of fullness, of satisfaction, of eternal joy. Because of what Christ did. Now, as we move on to verses four through six, we give some reasons for why we should sing and bless and proclaim and tell of this great news. And, and just as a side note, let, let me just stop for a minute before I continue. As a side note, I want you to I want you to see something related to the first couple of verses here. Have you ever noticed that Christianity is the only religion in the world that places a premium on singing? Did you ever think about that? Christians sing all the time. I mean, just think about the phenomenon of Christian music. And it has always been that way. There's never been a time when Christians did not sing. There's no religion like that. None. That sings like Christians do. And why? Why do we do that? Because we have such an amazing God that elicits a song from our hearts. It's no wonder we sing. You can't think about God and not sing about Him. He is a great God. Greatly to be praised, verse 4 tells us, for God... Is great. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. This is why we sing. There is none greater. There is no more glorious being than God, and such a being as this supreme God that we encounter in the Bible elicits a song. verse 4. The second part of verse 4 says, He is to be feared above all gods. He is the cause of great fear and awe and profound wonder. When you approach the God that is described for us in the Bible, the God who saves us, the God who invades our lives and comes to live within us, when you have placed your faith in Christ, you are encountering an amazing God. It's kind of like when you come to the Grand Canyon. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? And, and you know that that when you approach the Grand Canyon, and if you're coming from like Williams, Arizona, or Flagstaff, that area, and you, and you move north, you know it's it's all flat. It's like West Texas, right? And there's no trees, nothing like that, and 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 it's flat. There's nothing. And then all of a sudden, there you you come to the Grand Canyon, and there's just this massive chasm. And when you get to the Grand Canyon. It's like you are you are immediately attracted to the wonder and the glory of this amazing place, but you don't want to get too close. Uh, you, you, you want to get right up to the edge, but you don't want to get too close to that edge. Because you want to see the glory, but you know that the closer you get to that glory, the more dangerous it is. I think God is kind of like that. He is so glorious that we are attracted to Him. But when we get a glimpse of that glory, we also realize we must treat Him with great honor and respect. Because He is an awesome God. He is an awesome God. He is above all gods. Now this is not an endorsement of polytheism. Uh, this is not an endorsement that other gods exist. No, he is saying these are idols. The gods of the people are idols, verse 5. And the word idols here means literally, it means nobodies. These are non-entities. Right? They have no use whatsoever. They're phantom gods. And so this isn't an endorsement of polytheism. It's basically saying that God is the one true God. All other so-called gods are phantom gods. They're no real gods at all. They're idols. Right? The, The Greek translation of this passage actually translates idols here as demons. Because that's what they are. In order to emphasize the fact that there is only one true God and that all other gods are are false and that God is supremely exalted above all other gods, we see that in uh, the second part of verse 5 that the psalmist indicates why because the Lord has made the heavens. None of the ancient gods were said to have created anything. They just sort of came into existence, right? They're no different than the rest of creation. Only Judaism, only the ancient Israelite religion understood God for who he truly is. He is the creator of everything. He has made everything out of nothing. All he did was simply speak and stuff came into existence. No other God can do that. Right? No other God, verse 6, has the splendor and majesty that belong to our God, the strength and beauty that are in His sanctuary, the sanctuary being the place where He manifests His glory and His presence. Right? All other gods are just feeble products of human hands. Right? How stupid. Really, how stupid is it that you would make a god out of your own human hands when you realize that you yourself have been made by the one true God? That should should tell everyone that gods are nothing. These idols, these... Statues of stone and wood and whatnot—they don't have the splendor and majesty of our God. They don't have the strength and beauty. Notice the contrast between those words: strength and beauty. Amazing—the the fullness of God's character that is that is just simply expressed by his all-powerful strength, and his tender, wonderful beauty. Well, we move on to verses 7 through 10, and here we have again this, this introduction to this section with the threefold command to ascribe to the Lord, ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Actually, when you look at verses seven through ten, there are there are actually eight separate commands in these verses. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. There's the first three: bring, come, worship, tremble, say. These are all commands that that we are given again. The word ascribe means to attribute or assign a a quality to something. And and so the way that the psalmist uses it here, we are to speak what is true about God. We are to speak those things that are true about Him. We are to speak those things that magnify Him. And and so in order for us to speak or to ascribe to God characteristics or attributes that are true of who He is, we need to know who He is. This means that we need to immerse ourselves in God's Word. We need to study this God. We need to know this God. So we can speak truly about him. Notice the context here. In verse 8 it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Right? This word courts uh, tells us that we are dealing with a king here. This is a royal kind of imagery that we have. God is our king. He is a ruler But, of course, he is no ordinary ruler because he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the lord of the universe. He has a massive glory that no other being possesses. And he reigns. Right? Verse 10, say among the nations, the lord... And notice the result of this, indeed the world is firmly established, verse 10, it will not be moved. Now this is not talking about the geological stability of, of the earth. Rather, when when the psalmist says that the world is firmly established, it, he means that it has a fixed order and purpose that is immutable. And it will not change, right? God has a plan. He has a purpose for this world. And nothing will thwart those plans. I want you to look at a couple of passages that indicate that to us. Turn to Isaiah chapter 46. And by the way, you want to get a really magnificent vision of the greatness of our God, I encourage you to go home this week and read Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 48. Read those nine chapters in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 48. And I'll tell you, after you meditate on those nine chapters, you will have the most magnificently enlarged vision of God that you will ever find in the Bible. Let's look at just one of those passages, Isaiah 46, verse 9. Look at what we read there. Remember the former things long past, for I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. God has everything in the palm of his hands. He has planned everything to fit a meticulous blueprint that he established long before he even created this world. Look at Daniel chapter 4. These are the words of Nebuchadnezzar after he had been humbled, right? This is the greatest ruler, earthly ruler, in the world at the time, the first truly global leader of the ancient world, and he was humbled thinking that he was a man of great power and authority and so forth. He was humbled. And when he was humbled, he says that, that I blessed. Verse 34, we're looking at Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. He says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And This is what he says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of earth are counted as nothing but he does according to his will in the host of heaven right it, throughout the the invisible realm the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth no creature Stands outside of God's sovereign will, and no one, Nebuchadnezzar says, can ward off his hand or say to him, "What have you done?" Yeah, you know, some some read a passage like this and they think, well, that. Well, that means that God is just this capricious God, right? You you don't know what to expect from Him. You have no assurance that, that if He does whatever He wants to do, that He's not going to do something terrible. Well, that's simply not true. I want you to go back to Psalm 96. Go back to Psalm 96. And notice in verse 10 that the world is firmly established having been fixed by the sovereign purpose of God. It will not be moved. And then notice the last phrase of verse 10. He will judge the peoples with equity. God will never do anything that is not consummate with his just nature. With his sense of fairness, of his righteousness. And this means that ultimately God will make right every wrong that has ever been done. He will bring justice to every wrong. He will reward every right. He will not give anyone more than what they deserve, nor will he give anyone less than what they deserve. Now, in the world, we have many injustices. People get away with murder, right? Others suffer innocently. But one day, God will right all wrongs. He will reward all that is right. The godly will receive their just recompense. The ungodly will receive theirs. God will punish all the wicked in the just proportion of their just deserts, and he will not treat anyone unfairly. That's a truth we can make on. Let's move on to the last set of verses, verses 11 through 13. Again, notice we are giving this threefold command. Let, 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 let the heavens be glad, let the sea roar, let the field exult, right? Now, I want you to see in these verses that we have now moved from... Uh, the realm of God's image-bearing creatures that are to bring praise and glory to Him, including, again, including believers and unbelievers, because one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess before God that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they want to or not. But it is not just God's creatures that will bow before him, but the entire creation will as well. And this is what we see in these verses. Let the heavens be glad. Let the sea roar. Let the earth rejoice. Let the field exult. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Right? Here you have creation personified as if we were sentient creatures right creatures with intelligence right and, and we don't really understand what it means for inanimate objects to bring worship to god but somehow the creation itself brings glory to god praises god right they have a unique way of of worshiping him And, and the fullness of this worship is yet to come. And, and really, what we have in these verses is a very future orientation, right? And we're talking about uh, what will happen when the Lord comes. And this is a, so. This is a messianic prophecy we see, particularly in verse thirteen. He says, "Before the Lord, they're they're singing, they're praising." God, they're singing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. Right, He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Okay, so there is a cosmic scale to this worship, to this praise that God has given. This speaks of of a future kingdom. It speaks of the future kingdom of Christ itself. And it speaks ultimately to the restoration that this cursed world is experiencing. I want you to turn to to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we see this amazing promise that is given to the creation itself. Paul says, For I consider the sufferings, verse 18, Romans 8, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Right, this is us. Right, this is speaking of our future redemption, of our resurrection. The resurrection of our bodies, right? We will all go to the grave, but we will all one day rise again and we will receive new bodies, glorified bodies. But we're not the only ones that are going to receive this, this redemption, this resurrection. This resurrection. Verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Right? This is God. God subjected the creation in futility. This is the curse. This is the curse that came upon all of creation because of Adam and Eve's sin. He says he, he, he subjected this creation in futility in hope. Verse 21 That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You see, there is coming a day when Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom, his kingdom of righteousness and justice, and ultimately it will involve the destruction. Of this present heavens and earth. It's not an annihilation. Second Peter 3 tells us that, that, that this creation will be burned with fire. It won't be annihilated. It will be burned with fire. And then out of the ashes of that, of that burning, God will reform the creation. He'll take the the elements of this old world, He'll reform it, He'll take away the curse, and we'll have the new heavens and the new earth in which there will no longer be any curse. And folks, we have no idea how glorious that world is going to be. Even Adam and Eve had no picture of the glory that new heaven and earth, because they lived in a world that was corruptible, right? We will one day live as believers in Christ in a world that can never be corrupted. There will no longer be the possibility for any pain, any sorrow, any disease, any deformity, No disasters, no tornadoes and earthquakes and floods and snowstorms and disasters. No sin, no temptation, no evil, no death. Folks, this is the world that we look forward to. This is the world that our King, Is coming to bring to us. God has an amazing plan. He has a plan of redemption that will not fail. That his son will carry out. And I don't know about you. But for me, I am looking forward to that day. Because it is going to be a glorious day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, there's so much more from this psalm that we could unfold this morning. Father, we have just barely touched the surface of your glory as it it is revealed here. And, And Lord, that only barely touches the surface of what the rest of the psalms say and what the rest of your word says. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us an enlarged vision of who you are, that, that, Lord, we would encounter you for the greatness of the God that you are. That, Father, we would be in awe of who you are, of your majesty, of your glory, of the glory of Christ. Father, we would bow our knees before you. We would sing praises to you. And, Father, we would worship you. We would bless your glorious name. Father, not just when we come together in corporate worship. Father, yes, we must do that. But, Father, I pray we would do it with every aspect of our lives. Father, you must be first. Father, You must pervade every part of our lives, and we need to know who You are in order to do that. Father, move us toward You. Draw us closer to Yourself that we may know You as our glorious God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.